Do you think life is simpler after you retire? For some, it's actually more complicated when facing issues about health, estate plans, probate, long-term care, and more. That's why attorney CPA Joe Cordell hosts Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors and an open forum for older adults with important questions about their future. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Elder Talk. This week we want to talk to you about a topic that I guess none of us plan for, but we always know that there's some possibility that we could end up alone Mm -hmm. in our final years. And I don't want this to sound uh, depressing or I don't want it to sound discouraging. I want us to talk about a topic that that in a way is a result of a life long lived, Mm -hmm. right? That's exactly right. Typically, spouses do not go together, at least in their very old age. Right. Um, So there's some reasonable possibility that all of us will be alone at the end of our lives in some sense of the word. uh, And we need to plan for that possibility. Well, and many women that I know have delayed children or have put off children or married later or not married at all. They've made those lifestyle choices and when they age, they will probably not have close kin next to them. Well, and to some extent, though, this is a sociological phenomenon mm-hmm. and a cultural phenomenon and a, um, I would argue, a spiritual phenomenon, meaning that we had this this tsunami of a, of a birth boom mm-hmm. after World War II, the baby boomers, in that generation, most people define it to continue up to children born in 63 mm-hmm. or 64 even. So during that period of time, there, are, there were a lot of people and there was a lot of change. Um, our society went through a lot of changes. Um, the, the divorce rate went up substantially. People who were married were choosing to have fewer children. Um, uh, church attendance has dropped off. Mm-hmm. So this community connectiveness that existed with churches has changed. Um, there's now a bit of a spiritual void in that way, mm-hmm. and a void that, quite frankly, is very material in the sense that much of the charity, much of the assistance that came locally came through religious institutions. And then, of course, there there's this phenomenon of an international job market. Right. And at one time, it was conceivable that your children would stay in your area, that they would be married and employed nearby, and as a result, there to help take care of you as you age. That that uh, very popular picture that many of us have in the 50s mm-hmm. of multi-generations in the same house. Everybody getting together for Sunday dinner. and Yeah, I yeah. mean, they, <clears throat> I, I regard that as, as a wonderful time in many ways in the United States, but that's gone. And now we have children who are distributed across a continent, in some cases across a hemisphere Mm -hmm. or more. So the world has changed. And now I think that that we're recognizing as we age that there's a possibility that those support systems and supporters that would otherwise have been there, and not necessarily financially, incidentally, but supporting in all those important ways, may very well not be there. These may be gaps or vacuums in our lives as we age. And 
And what is crucial about having this conversation is that this is a time in our life when we're most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Th- this would be a topic of concern if we were talking about somebody who's 20, right. 30, 40, 50. But it becomes a crisis when we're talking about people at a point in their life when they're most vulnerable to, to missteps and to exploitation and all those other things. And um, magnifying that further is the fact that there are so many of these people now. Mm-hmm. It, if we simply had a fairly uniform portions of our society at different stages in life, uh, that, would, that would be a tidy way to assure that you have earners contributing to the cost of the health care system, you have people available uh, to help because th- those requiring this care are su- are uh, proportional to the numbers of people and institutions available to care for them. Mm-hmm. But but when you look at this grossly disproportionate allocation of age in our society, then you have on the one side of the scales this this large mass of people. The baby boomers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've been and, hearing about them for years. In the circumstance you and I have been describing here, and then on the other side of the scales, well, you know. You have the millennials. <laughs> we have Generation Z or X yeah, or whatever exactly. it is. Uh, X, Y, and Z maybe. But the point is um, this this scenario that I've described is one worth talking about. And what's interesting is it's not been neglected. Exactly. There was a wonderful Wall Street, Wall Street Journal article recently in which it talked about the uh, – Aging Alone, I think was the title. It talked about this phenomenon that we've described, and it estimated that, what, 1 in 10? 1 in 10, 1 in 11, mm-hmm. age yeah. 50 and 60. Yeah, age 50 and over in circumstances such as I described, without a living spouse, a partner, um, a living child even. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are people who, if they, if they were age 50, I think it mentioned 1 in 11, and mm-hmm. 1 in 10 was a number I read for people ages 60 and over. So we can imagine that that percentage goes up of oh, people yeah. in that circumstance with each decade. Well, certainly. And because more women live longer than men. I mean, most of the time there's about five years, if you look at all of the statistics, that women will outlive their spouse. So you may be alone because of death. Yeah. Yeah. And I always joke with when I'm doing um, presentations and whatnot and I point out that no one's ever heard of a company called A Place for Dad. Exactly. That's and, right. And it's just a fact that, that women will tend to outlive men, as you suggested, by five years or so. And, uh, and I think that it behooves all of us who are dealing with people at this stage of their life to, to participate in the discussion, to call their attention to the issues, and to plan for them. Right. Many of them, I think, will be similar to some of those things that you might do as a married couple or as a couple still together. But I think that there are some other things that single people need to do. They need to plan a little bit differently for some of these challenges ahead. And I don't think this is something we can count on government for. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I, we agree I don't on typically this. count on government for most things. Uh, but, but, but I will say now that the, the Trump administration has launched what it's called a, a program to advance faith-based partnerships. And to help combat isolation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah with, with this in mind. And, and what they're calling a faith-based uh, partnership is one that, that uh, calls upon uh, churches, synagogues, religious institutions to, to roll up their sleeves and to come in and help. But now remember, these are the same institutions that were thrown out. 
mm-hmm. for three to four decades that that were told essentially go away. We're the government. We're the ones that can and should be taking care of the people. And now suddenly it seems that perhaps we do need mm-hmm. these wonderful institutions after all. The problem is when now they're called and asked to come back, it turns out there aren't as many of them. Right. Nor do they have the resources right. that they had three decades. Or the relationships with some of the people. Because oh, yeah. if people have not been attending for many years, it's much more difficult to establish that relationship when you're 75 or so. That's a very good point, and that is part of the problem is some of these relationships that were so strong for maybe the first three or four decades of these people's lives, they they have since evaporated. Mm-hmm. And so this institution is a bit of a stranger coming into the lives of these people, and the reception that, that would otherwise have been accorded uh, these resources is not what it could and should have been. But I, I do applaud at least the effort by mm-hmm. the Trump administration to encourage this private sector solution. Yeah, it's interesting. I, As you were speaking, I thought of a situation that recently happened in our church where someone came in from the community and, and just said, we don't go to church. Can you do my dad's funeral? I mean, they had no one to call, no one at that end of life that was going to provide any sort of a even a funeral service for them. And you wonder how often does that happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there seems like there's something cold about when you hear people getting deciding to be married and they they go to the clerk's office downtown. And I guess similarly, when you pass away, uh, you can pay a fee mm-hmm. for a funeral home to provide a room to have a a service uh, such as it is. And I don't want to be too too critical of that. Everybody mm-hmm. makes their own calls. Just Coming from what I've been familiar with, mm-hmm. where I grew up, that things such as those important events in people's lives were inherently spiritual. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to imagine a time when they become entirely denuded of that, and it's a purely secular event. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that that secular system is not holding up to the stress that it's inherited by the baby boomers. Mm-hmm. Um and I would mention also, though, in addition to the faith-based uh, partnerships that have been advocated through the Trump administration, I don't know which um, which department was charged with that, but I, I thought found it interesting that Britain similarly has created this position of minister of loneliness. I know. Is that crazy? <laughs> I, I mean, that's, I mean, good for them for trying to recognize that there is a problem and that there is a challenge for people that are alone. But what is a minister for loneliness? I wonder what they do. I don't know. The article did not give many details on that. And and when you have this the this welfare state uh for which Great Britain is I started to say famous, I'll say infamous. Uh now now Margaret Thatcher did marvelous things, but you know, there's something about this this uh, bureaucratic creep that happens, and it just it, it, it inches it, its way back like rising water. And so now we know that it is a very um, quasi-socialist. I, I, that, that word's loaded. I should say it's a very much a welfare state. Mm-hmm. And, and as a result, you know, they, they, you've seen the trends we've, I've, I've been describing in the last few minutes here in terms of the church's role in our lives. I mean, you can magnify that two to three to four times when you talk about what's happened in Great Britain since World War II. Now, mm-hmm. it had started before then, but there was this, this return to faith to a great extent during World War II. C.S. Lewis, his mm-hmm. famous addresses on the radio that inspired so many of the British. I mean, coming out of World War II, this 
they had returned to their spiritual roots in many ways. Mm -hmm. Many attended the Anglican Church. They're still Catholics, of course, in Britain. But um, since then, it's taken the course that that the Western Hemisphere generally has taken. But but I, I am interested in the fact that they acknowledge this crisis. You have people who are aging and um, many of them are aging alone just by the order of events, and they're very vulnerable, and they need those, those um, system-wide supports that existed at one time and that many of them don't have. So that's kind of the springboard into our discussion today. And, uh, and I guess there's no better place to start than, than what do we do when we're planning the balance of our lives. Let's talk about life care. Mm-hmm. I see that as one of the primary issues. And that, that is certainly uh, encased many of the points we've talked about today related to those life care issues. But there are also issues after you're gone. Well, and that's where I think starting with life care is the most important. Because as we've talked about so many times, planning is not just for what to do with your stuff. Planning and thinking ahead is is to help you live the rest of your life to the best of your ability and doing the things that you want to do. And and it does mean um, planning, meaning that uh, often people think, well, a, a phrase that I hear and still hear when I go to Whitley County or Appalachia where I grew up is, well, we'll just have to wait and see. Oh, I've heard that last That times. phrase <laughs> is used so commonly there that any time you have a conversation almost, and in and, and, and perhaps some other context, it would cry for someone to say, well, what will we do and when? Mm-hmm. Instead, the conversation concludes with, um, well, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Normally that means no one's going to do anything. Events will take their course, and maybe they'll turn out well, and maybe they or won't. maybe not. But, oh, well. <laughs> and it, it, it is a cultural thing. But, but I think when you're talking about this, you know, we cannot, me meaning the plural, all of us, we, we cannot allow this to happen, meaning that we've got to take steps to, to assure that our future is properly cared for, especially the ones we, we love and care for mm-hmm. who may themselves be in this situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess I'm talking to a lot of guys out there who statistically, let me tell you, you know, you're going to go first. So, you know, think about this as a conversation about the care for your wives. And then many of the people who are listening to this show are single now mm-hmm. with perhaps no intentions of marrying. Right. Um, they may have children, either don't have children or they have children who they could be alienated. Mm-hmm. You know, sadly, there are some of those situations. Uh, and then there are children who maybe they're not alienated. They're just gone. Right. And for as a practical matter, they're not going to be willing to get on a plane and come back every weekend and and play the role that might be necessary. Well, I'm thinking of some friends of mine. They have one child in Japan and one child in Texas, and they live here. So Japan's not exactly a hop, skip, and a jump. No, no. And and when you when you have that arrangement, then you, you in the past might have said, well, okay, well, my parents are involved in their church, so they have all those very close relationships and I emphasize those because I think those relationships are one in which there's this mutual understanding of, of a duty to care for. And, and I say that this spans religious faiths for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that there's something special about that relationship that's hard to replicate from a secular perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you don't have that, 
as we've illustrated in the, so far with these statistics, then then I think that that there's uh, there's a foreseeable problem in the future, and and that what what do, steps do you take when you face that? So, so let's dive in, can we? Let's do it. Um, well, you've heard us talk about durable power of attorney. Durable powers of attorney are important. Um, they, they're a critical document. They're not an expensive document, but it's the thing that you can give to someone and say to them, look, if I have any problems caring for myself, um, if I become incompetent, I want you to step in and make the decisions that need to be made for me. Uh, it's not as simple. The conversation that I just illustrated is not quite that short, but that's the the essence of the conversation. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, fine, I'm willing to have that conversation, but now who do I have it with? Right. I mean, well, by definition, we've ruled out a lot of the candidates mm-hmm. that they might otherwise have spoken with. Well, and sometimes it can't really even be a friend who's a similar age because what if they start having problems? Very good point because that often comes up. And even when someone's suggesting maybe a CPA or a lawyer – Often the person that comes to mind is is a contemporary, mm-hmm. and, and so I'm often having to say, wait, wait, uh, maybe we choose somebody that's at least a decade younger, and I would prefer a couple of decades younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if it's a client that's 40, a couple of decades younger is not a good idea. I was just thinking, <laughs> well, they have to be old enough to have a little wisdom in there with them. But for our, for our audience, who I, I, I categorize you listening as being for the most part, 65 and older. Those of you who are not, you're allowed to keep the radio where it is. But I think it's safe advice to say to you, at least a decade younger, maybe two decades. Mm-hmm. But but uh, the question is not so much, I guess, choosing from this array of candidates. It's having a candidate. And um, lawyers, often there's not the relationship so I'm not real quick to suggest you hire your lawyer. Yeah, do you want your lawyer deciding if you're competent? I, I well, would not want that personally. Yeah, yeah. It, it would have to. It couldn't be just the legal relationship. There'd have to be a personal relationship. Okay. And even, it, I, I would say that above all things, putting professions aside, let, let's ignore professions for a minute. Above all things, as those of you who listen to this show know, um, it's important that the person be have have great character, that they be trustworthy, and that they have good judgment. That's really it. The rest of the stuff, they can get done otherwise. They need to be responsible and good judgment and trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people can fall into that category who are not professionals. All other things being equal, is it helpful for them to have some knowledge of the law or some knowledge of accounting or some knowledge of investment? Yeah, all other things being equal. But but if you don't have somebody that has those skills, remember what's important, the, those core qualities I just mentioned. But, you know, some people really struggle with who will this be. Mm-hmm. And, and this document does go into effect immediately, I would suggest, as, as I've spoken before, um, you can have a springing document that doesn't come into effect until a panel or a single or a couple of physicians confirm that you are not competent. That's all it takes. It doesn't require a gavel to go down the court. It doesn't require um, any any formal criteria. Uh, you can choose who you want. It doesn't even have to be doctors. It could be a panel of family members mm-hmm. uh, when that would fit your circumstances. But, but for many of the people we're talking to today, the subject we're talking about today is one that assumes there's not that panel available. And perhaps, certainly there could be a doctor available or two doctors who together would agree. 
that can slow things down. If you've chosen somebody that you trust, trust them mm-hmm. is my suggestion. Choose carefully, but once you've chosen carefully, uh, I wouldn't put that hurdle there. It's just my suggestion uh, because uh, it it can make things difficult in implementing the plan. Um, but this is a hugely powerful document. I would mention one other thing, too, that some people as they're aging are concerned about what about my assets? There are a variety of things out there. Um, how is someone to know what is where? You should certainly maintain an inventory, a balance sheet, uh, if you will. And a balance sheet can is simply a list of your assets and liabilities, just like you've seen with companies. If you've ever looked at the financial statements of a company, you'll see on one side of the page assets, and on the other side you'll see liability and what's called owner's equity. But for the purposes of this conversation, a place where you just list, a single place, where you just list your assets and your liabilities. This is a piece of cake. It could probably wouldn't take you more than a couple of hours to do this. Don't worry about the exact amounts. Oddly enough, while balance sheets are all about the exact amounts, really what we're more concerned about here is less about the values than we are identifying the things. Because if they know there's a bank account, for example, a Fidelity account, mm-hmm. or they know that, that you have a brokerage account somewhere else, um, Carrollton Bank, wherever you might have uh, just regular savings, that's what they need to know. Don't worry. Don't get caught up in, gee, I, I don't have the exact amount, so I'm going to have to do some research to get that. So Put, I assume if someone comes and talks with you, you're going to give them paperwork to fill out that's going to help jog their memory on these things that they need to list. If they haven't quite made that decision to go see someone yet, are there forms online that they can find? Are there there are things that you can look at that, that can are trigger go, that can trigger? Oh, I didn't even think about my 401k that from uh, the company that I worked for 10 years ago. Or yeah, something. A, a good law firm uh, that does this will have documents that you take home and that are intended to trigger your memory about things. So, yes, we have those and, and other firms that do much of this do, too. Um, it, or they should, uh, meaning if they that, don't. Maybe you don't want to use them. <laughs> well, it suggests that that maybe they're they're just not as helpful as they might be. Um, but but I would I would go so far as to say this: if you if you have some familiarity with, I hate to even complete this sentence. I'll complete it with spreadsheets. Uh, <laughs> And I know you've, you've just lost about ten people. I know, I know, or half the people. I, I, I well, they're the same. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, the point is whether uh, whether it's Apple, Apple has things called it's called numbers, or whether it's Excel spreadsheets. Excel. Some of you listening, Google I know, sheets. I know that this just goes into a fog when you hear this. But others, and these are the ones I'm saying this for. There's some out there who who have uh, some familiarity with, you know, a spreadsheet can be so easy to use. It doesn't require any expertise with numbers. It's just a bunch of columns. And what's great about that is it really lends itself to to uh, listing your stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and rather than buy a product, which you can do, I mean, you can buy a bunch of apps. There are a ton of apps out there. Those of you, whether you're, you're using uh, Apple or you're using uh, Google Play. Yeah, well. Google Play Store. Android. Yeah, Android, so I was thinking of. You can tell I'm an Apple guy. But whether it's Android or Apple, uh, there are a ton of apps out there that will make this easy for you. But I'll throw in, for those of you who, who are familiar with spreadsheets, I mean, it's so easy to create one where you just list your assets and uh, and, and you list your, your debts. And this becomes the single most important piece of information 
that the person needs who will be taking care of you. Now, this can take place in a couple of contexts. We mentioned the durable power of attorney. That's the easiest. Um, it's, it's the person who you give them a relatively inexpensive document. Be sure it's drafted correctly. We won't go into that in this show, but there are a number of decisions to make. Not a lot, but a number of decisions to make to be sure that, that the one that you have is for you. But but once that's done, then the second p- critical thing after the after having the document in place is getting to this person or having available to this person this sheet that I've been describing because that becomes the 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 the, the, the single uh, source that they'll rely on to make their decisions in taking care of you. It's a critical component. Some people think, "Oh, I've created this power of attorney; everything's good." But imagine if, uh, uh, as an extreme example, let's assume that. Uh, I were to have give you a power of attorney over my assets and I were to pass away tomorrow morning, it's fine. You have a power of attorney. So it says you have authority to do things. And the first thing you're asking is, well, uh, where's the stuff? What do I do? What is it? <laughs> Where is it? And, and I use an example of passing away. I should say that I become incompetent because passing away is a different problem. But, uh, yeah, I become incompetent. So so you're, you have a willingness to help mm-hmm. and you have the authority to help. But but you're going to be fumbling around trying to figure out, ferret out what, what is out there. And rather than put you in that position where, though you want to be helpful, you probably will be very inefficient mm-hmm. and you won't be as helpful as you could be. Um, instead, be sure that this is a two-step process. One is to have the document in place, but the other is to have in a single place a list of these assets and liabilities. Now, let let me mention here uh, a, a kind of a, an alternative, or I would regard it as a supplement to the power of attorney. And and I would argue that that some of you who see yourself as potentially being alone should consider a trust. You've heard me talk about this a lot, but trusts are a marvelous way to have your stuff in a single place, to have a single set of rules, to have a person placed in charge with with governing rules for that person. Something that's much more robust than what is in effect a uh, blank check. And I don't mean this in a pejorative, entirely pejorative way, meaning that a person that you want to take care of you if, if an emergency happens and you give them, give them this durable power of attorney, when I characterize it as a blank check, all I'm saying is that you've given them access to everything to take care of you. Uh, so it doesn't have to be seen as a negative, uh, depending on how trustworthy the person is. But I would argue that even if they're perfectly trustworthy, Compare that to a, a a trust in which you have a set of rules, you have instructions, you have an inventory of assets, um, and you have uh, the the governance, for lack of a better word, a fiduciary, somebody in charge of it who has uh, has this um, uh, immense responsibility. And when you contrast those two things, you can see how as as wonderful as the power of attorney is, and it is wonderful, uh, that it's comparatively sloppy or messy potentially compared to what a trust can be. So if it's if you plan this correctly, you probably have both because you'll probably have some assets you don't stick in your trust. And I won't get into that, but there'll be <laughs> some assets that you'll decide to not put in your trust. Just take my word for it. There'll probably be a few of those. So for for a single person, are you saying a, a trust is really, they've really got to consider it even more so than what you might say for a married couple? Yeah, but just because what we're assuming in this discussion is that somebody is um, is more vulnerable, uh, that they're allowing for the possibility that there will be a time in their life when perhaps they can't make decisions for themselves, um, 
and they don't have that spouse next to them uh, like many of our listeners do today. Mm -hmm. It might be that even these same listeners today, 15 years from now, could be in this position we're describing. Uh, so, So that person needs in place a structure of their own creation. Mm-hmm. They can't count on things to fall in place for them in the scenarios that we are describing you know, existed decades ago. And so the trust is going to be there to help carry out what wishes you might have, um, either with your care, um, your health care, your, where your living arrangements, all of those types of things. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it would be the, um, that, the only beneficiary of that trust at that time will be you, okay. m- meaning you are the one who um, will be the recipient of all the decisions of the trust. And then what's really cool about this, though, is that unlike the power of attorney, which is only serves the purpose of helping you while you're alive, this trust serves that purpose. But then the moment you pass away, nothing goes to probate. Everything is handled within the trust. So but it's, what if I say, you know, I'm single, I don't care. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Uh-huh. Because that that is that is a circumstance that a number of these people who fit this profile mm-hmm. that's what they're in right uh, I've it, heard it yeah. I've heard people say it yeah and and incidentally not all of them are without kids right <laughs> some I mean there there's just alienation for due to whatever it might have been uh, whether it's an in law often you know whether it's a daughter in law or the son in law sometimes uh, they they uh, uh, contribute to that that estrangement well and sometimes if they're estranged you don't really necessarily want your assets to go to them yeah yeah and 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 i think that for that reason you need to think about the possibility that you're going to want to consider perhaps a a charitable gift uh or a gift to somebody who's not a relative uh let's talk a little bit about that because it really is the next step in planning for this point in our lives when we could be alone and and very dependent and very vulnerable so we want to talk about that period, but we also want to talk about what happens to your stuff when you pass away in that situation. Back in a moment. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors. Presented by Cordell Planning Partners, your elder law advisors. And now, attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Back with Elder Talk. Well, today uh, we're talking about the phenomenon of being alone as you're aging. And what are the implications of that? Whether you're you were divorced at one point, whether perhaps you're a widower or a widow, uh, whatever those circumstances may be, what does that mean for us as we age? We know that that can raise special problems, problems that are a little different from those who have families uh, surrounding them and and a spouse. So we talked a little bit about earlier in the show, you know, some issues about planning, planning for your care when you're alive, planning to assure that someone is there to make decisions for you when that time comes, if it does, before you die, when you can't make those decisions for yourself. Mm -hmm. But then just before the break, we talked about, well, what about your stuff when you pass away? Meaning if you don't have children perhaps at all, Mm -hmm. or in some cases if you're alienated from your children, then what sort of estate plan might you consider? And that does. It raises some interesting questions. It does because – Honestly, I don't think most people say, gosh, I hope my stuff just goes 
to probate or it just gets distributed or sold off. And or I'm indifferent. It. Yeah. Yeah. And, and but you're right. Some people and I've heard people say actually clients who've said <laughs> that they're a little indifferent about their stuff. But that's a distinct minority. I think that we're we're really called upon. It behooves us to to think uh, from a stewardship perspective. You know, what is the right and good thing to do with our stuff? Now, often when we have family members, then for most of us, that is the, the natural and right thing. Yeah, sometimes it will be a niece or a nephew. You may not have children of your own, but I've known plenty of nieces and nephews who have received an inheritance, actually, from an uncle. or. Uh-huh. Lawyers call that laughing heirs. Laughing heirs? <laughs> yeah, meaning that they didn't have any personal relationship with a person. <laughs> Uh, so they they are the beneficiaries of this sum of money. Uh, but, yeah, I agree that if there is family there, that does mean something is different about that person versus another. Mm-hmm. To others, their perspective on family is different. You know, the world has changed. Uh, so let's talk about some of those options. Now, keep in mind that there are charitable uh, giving opportunities Uh, for lack of a better word, opportunities that exist while you're alive Mm -hmm. from which you can be paid an annuity. Now, you should know that that these things that are advertised by various companies, typically they're they're 501c3s, they're called public charities, and and what they will often offer to do is to receive a gift for which you get a tax deduction and from which you'll receive an annuity. Mm -hmm. Now, I want you to know that the IRS will not allow you to both deduct the entire gift and receive the annuity without taxation. So what the IRS will do is they will assess a value based upon the annuity. And that value is is determined by looking at charge, charts, which, which rate based on longevity, based on interest rates at the time, okay. AFR, as it's called. And, and those charts will dictate a value. And that is the value that will not be deductible. But the rest, the part you aren't really getting back, so to speak, you do. It's true. You get to take a tax deduction. So you might give a million-dollar gift to a to a university, and that university might pay you uh, $2,000 a month. And the value of that based on, on your age at the time you made it, maybe the value of that is – is probably would be very small. Mm-hmm. So maybe the value was $100,000 or less, in which case the rest is a gift. So you are tax deducting it, which means that essentially you carry the loss forward. So you are kind of getting the income tax-free from that perspective. Okay. Uh, but but one advantage, though, is that when you're making the gift in your, in your 70s, really those actuarial tables are going to suggest a very low value of what you're, you're getting back. Hmm. Uh, the value you're getting back. So it could be that it's a pretty small percentage of your gift. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to be uh, critical of that. I would say, though, that if you're looking purely at the money, if you had no charitable intent or values related to that to that church or that university, then, yeah, you could probably, from a purely monetary standpoint, do better with a gift uh, not a gift, but rather the purchase of an annuity um, alone without the gift. Uh, but that's not always true. It, I it think, depends on the bracket. Yeah, and I think most of the time when you give a gift like that, it's because you have a relationship with that institution. That's right. And especially when your needs are not such that that you feel like you have to have all that money. 
and and I assume that 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 our listeners include people who do have more money, but a lot of them are going to be in that middle range. Maybe they'll have certainly several hundred thousand dollars when they pass away. I think that's true of many of our listeners, and some will be over a million. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is that when you when you engage in that transaction, it is irreversible once you've made that gift and you've gotten the annuity as far as what I've ever heard of and especially if you've taken the tax deduction but but for others um, you know there is this opportunity that you can make a commitment during your life that is not irreversible where you're not actually making the gift uh, but it does answer a little bit this question we had before we came to discussing what happens to your stuff and that's your care of during your lifetime Mm-hmm. The danger about, and this sounds a little, um, uh, what is it? What's it? Not mercenary. Maybe a little Machiavellian. That's too harsh. Uh, but the bottom line is that whenever you give money during your lifetime to people or institutions, it's not being cynical to suspect that they don't have the incentive to care for you that they might otherwise have had. <laughs> and I know that, that, um, some would say, well, you shouldn't impute such thoughts. But the bottom line is uh, I'm a big believer, and I say this to clients too, that um, that often it's good maybe to give a gift when you're gone. Mm-hmm. It's okay to make certain commitments where people will know what your intentions are and for you to intend to honor those gifts. But um, it's generally a better idea to have some control as long as you can. Now, when you become incompetent, naturally you don't. But it's good to have control as long as you can. So I sometimes discourage life gifts. I prefer life commitments to charitable institutions, and I'm not referring to churches primarily here, although churches may not be immune to this point. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there's something to be said for making clear what your intentions are and uh, and and. Being, uh, having the integrity to express that in your estate planning documents and yet retaining some ability to change that down the road. Well, and because if the situation at the institution changes, you may decide you don't want to leave an inheritance to them. I, uh, another good point. Another good point. Yeah, you're right. And it, I just, all things argue for maximum flexibility. Um as you, as long as you're competent, mm-hmm. and then once you're incompetent, then okay, you you don't want that flexibility in the hands of people who may not share your judgment. So so then you do want to perhaps lock things down, and that's typically the way planning is done. But um, but I, I uh, back to options for giving when you pass away. Um, yes, you can give before you pass away. You can give after you pass away. Um, I think that. Church, for many of my clients, is an important factor. Um, I think that, that when you give to a church, you need to think about, are you wanting it to go into a general fund? Uh, the problem with going in gifts generally to charitable institutions is that they're spent in operations. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're just spent in monthly um, utilities, and salaries, salaries mm-hmm. uh, maintenance, upkeep. And many people intend to... Many people like, for example, bricks-and-mortar investments. Fundraisers know this. Mm-hmm. Fun, a, a professional fundraisers know that if you're going to ask people to give big, you need to have a, a project that, yep. that's a capital investment yep. as opposed to what, what accountants call an expense. And a capital investment is something that, that 
generates value over many years to come. Buildings are one example, but so are scholarships, Mm -hmm. so are institutes, uh, other things that you can create. Through your church, you can do similar things. Uh, You can create programs where money will be, uh, the income from that money will be paid. Often some churches create this in the form of, um, it's not a private foundation, it'd be essentially a public foundation, but um, it still allows tax deductions, but the money will be paid out over time, and its intention is that it lasts for decades or more. So if you give a gift to a church, say, after you pass away, or or at any institution, not necessarily a church, but how much flexibility do you have, one, to put a restriction on it? I would like it to be used for blank, and then how much flexibility does that institution then have if they don't have that anymore or something. They, they don't have a children's scholarship fund or something like that. Yeah, well, um, that comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. And, yes, the donor does have the right to place restrictions on the use of the money within reason. Um, it can't go to the point to where the donor essentially continues to control because then there's not been a gift by the IRS's definition. So you have to you know, surrender domination and control or uh, in in the sense that uh, you, you release something as a gift. So that's a thin line. Sometimes it's crossed when you have too much participation by a, a donor. But, but what you're saying, I think, is can the donor just announce that I only want the money used for this range of activities? Say missions work. Yeah. I only want it to go to missions work. Yeah, as long as it's within the definition of what uh, the IRS, it, some people have heard the phrase 501c3. It means that certain types of gifts for things related to education, religion, uh, uh, poor or uh, poverty, yeah. et cetera, these, these causes mm-hmm. are, are going to be tax deductible. So you, you want to be able to take the tax deduction, and, uh, and you still want to be used for certain things. So you can absolutely give gifts that are specified in that way. But the question becomes, do you entrust to the church the fact that this money would still go into a general account? What happens is that if you did nothing more than specify it in that way, then what happens is that they will they will have it in the general account, but they'll have a bookkeeping account where if you looked at their books, it would show, well, we have this fund set up for this, et cetera. So you may want to be more specific uh, you may want it to go into a specific entity mm-hmm. uh, that is separate from the entity that is the church generally. And a lot, some churches, maybe even most churches, most larger churches, have these these charitable corporations that qualify for this long-term giving. So it doesn't go into a general account where it's so vulnerable to somebody reaching in and use it. Not not from a fraudulent standpoint, just you know, reaching a rough spot, rough patch, and so they, they use the money or borrow it. It's easy to do. It's all sitting in the same account. Mm-hmm. You just have you just have a, a, an accounting recognition of this. Now, the second best thing, uh, that's the worst. A slightly better is is where there's a separate account that's created, an account at the bank. That's oh, okay. different from an accounting system where you create an account. I hope people understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to have an entirely separate account where the funds are not commingled, uh, the account is dedicated to this purpose. And if you require that in your gift, it gives you a little more peace of mind, um, not quite as much as an in separate entity 
but it's much better than just giving something to a church and going to the general account and they just making a line entry. I was going to say a line item versus an account. Yeah, yeah. That Maybe that's a better way to say it. But in any case, that's a consideration to make. I, I should mention, uh, we're probably running out of time. How much more time do we have? We've got about three minutes. Okay. Uh, I don't think we should fail to mention that uh, some people have pets. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking of my, I'm thinking of my mother. And I'm thinking of a couple of people actually, who um, I'm wondering if they're, you know, they buy this young dog, a dog whose lifespan is 15, 16 years, and, and they might outlive them. Well, you know, I want to, I, I, I want to be optimistic, but yes, there's a possibility. What happens in that case? Well, hopefully, you have someone who's willing to take over raising this dog for you or caring for the dog the rest of of its life. I was going to mention that there was an amendment to the trust law in Missouri. Uh, oh, it's been it's over a decade ago, but it's it was an amendment now that you're allowed to have money that's set up in a trust for the care of an animal, and it's enforceable up to the lifespan of that animal. Now you can't hmm. cover the animal's progeny okay. <laughs> in multiple <laughs> generations, but but you can for the balance of your dog's life. You can create a trust and. And those of you listening think, oh, this is for rich people. No, I mean, the cost of doing this is not very great, uh, especially if you're doing a trust anyway. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing a trust anyway, to, to create a sub-trust in which money is dedicated for that purpose is not significantly more expensive. And what it does is it, it set aside money for which there's a fiduciary duty. This is not just a volunteer. Oh, okay. It's not an informal thing that you, you would go out of this world knowing that your dog is going to be taken care of for the balance of, of its life. Incidentally, I think that that's a, a, a worthy thing. I mean, given that you've accepted the responsibility mm-hmm. of caring for this dog, mm-hmm. and uh, just because you've left the, world, left the world still needs to be fed and cared for. Mm-hmm. And all too often, people do not give thought to that. And and I think, I think they, for many people listening, that's good news. So keep in mind, you can create a trust or include in your trust a provision for the care of your animals. So maybe you put $10,000 in there. Maybe you put 5000 or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be a lot less, actually. Do you get really specific on what types of procedures you might be willing to pay for? Or? Well, you could, but, but for the most part, you identify somebody who you compensate if need be, uh, but but hopefully they'll volunteer. But either way, if they, you pay them something. Pay them $50 a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but provide for the food and the and the veterinarian care and and that you know I, I said five or ten thousand actually much less for uh, so I think this is something that more people should do quite frankly who mm-hmm. have pets and I just think they didn't know the option was out there right so they instead impose on one of their kids and say you know, I want you to you're taking and the kid feels really guilty so you know they take <laughs> this dog into their house and but all right we're out of time boy time flies in on this show I hope it flies when you're listening to it also. Anyway, this has been another episode of Elder Talk. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors with attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Listen again next Saturday for another edition of Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, sponsored by Cordell Planning Partners, your elder law advisors. For more information, visit eldercarelaw.com. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.